Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. We'll look together at James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Faith and our future, patience, steadfastness, the example of the prophets, the example of Job, and our trust in the character of God. We'll look specifically at verses 10 and 11, but just to put it in its setting, reading from verse 7, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, consider, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I'd simply ask you to observe with me in the text that patience is mentioned four times. Verse 7, again in verse 7, verse 8, and verse 10. And then steadfastness is mentioned twice in verse 11. And we have these, these invitations to wait and to suffer, to wait and to suffer with steadfastness and with patience. Question, why would God mention patience not once, twice, three, but four times when God is speaking to people like you? I'll leave that question unanswered. Why would God have to repeat steadfastness twice when he's speaking to people like you? The word patience is macrothume, literally long time angry. And you're not allowed to translate that long time angry like that's God's will for me to be like Godzilla and for me to just rage for a long time. It's not what it means. It means it takes you a long time to become angry. It means long suffering. It means long suffering. It's the opposite of being short fused. It's the opposite of being that woman or that man that everything sets you off. Macrothume, patience, is usually used of our relationships with other people. It means to be long-suffering and long-fused, to put up with a lot from prickly people, from extra patience-required kind of people in our lives. And the other word, steadfastness or endurance in James, is hupomone, literally to remain under, to remain under. And this second word, steadfastness or endurance, is used most often not with people but with circumstances. That is, it's a determination to be steadfast in difficulty and trial. We're patient with people, we're long-suffering with people, and we endure steadfastly difficult circumstances. We're long-suffering with people and we're steadfast in difficult circumstances. This is the emphasis of the preaching here. And just another word or two about preaching. The jokes have become rather tired that, oh, yeah, 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 you preachers, we understand you just work one day a week and only till noon on that day. 
I was talking to one of our deacons uh, at uh, Golf League this week, and he said, um, he said, uh, well, we just ended that 8 a.m., you know, social distancing and mask service. So instead of preaching three times now on Sunday, you only have to preach twice. So we're not going to pay you the same, are we? <laughs> he was joking, I think. You know, the, the response to preaching is, you know, to make a joke, hopefully because you hold your preacher in, uh, in affection in your heart as I do you. But I'll tell you, it is very uncommon, very uncommon for the response to my preaching to be this. Hey, Spencer, what you said is completely wrong. And here are the eight reasons why what you said is completely wrong. Super rare for me to get that response, but to tell you reality, it is very common for me to get this response. Hey, Spencer, what you said was right, but it just doesn't work for me. See the difference? It's not a philosophical argument like my theology's wrong or the application of the doctrine is wrong. It is a personal carving out that I would put in the yeah, but category. What you said is right, but it doesn't work in my marriage. It doesn't work in my job. It doesn't work with my situation. What you said was right, but it just doesn't work for me. And in this situation, the Holy Spirit or the inspired writer of scripture or the uninspired but hopefully well-meaning expositor who's at work today will apply illustrations to show you that people with the same nature as you and people with the same circumstances, if not more difficult circumstances than you, they manage to apply it and not say, yeah, but, and carve themselves out. So therefore you also lose the ability to not apply it and carve yourself out. And that's exactly what James does with the prophets and with Job. He's going to do that with Elijah in his admonition to prayer in 13 to 17 that we'll hit up next week, Lord willing. An illustration takes that personal carve out and says, no, it doesn't work. Because here's a person just like you in a more difficult situation than yours and they managed to do it with God. Therefore, you can too. James gives us three, at least three solid illustrations in this paragraph. The picture of the farmer, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And then the two pictures we'll look at this week. The picture of the prophets and the picture of Job. So point number one. Expect to follow the example of suffering like the prophets. Point number one, expect to follow the example of suffering like the prophets. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed. Or no, no, that's it, just verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Expect to follow the example of suffering like the prophets. The New Testament speaks about the prophets, these heroes of the Old Testament, and it's not complicated. The New Testament consistently and persistently says two things about the prophets. These are the two things that the New Testament persistently says about the prophets. Number one, they spoke the truth. Number two, they suffered for speaking the truth. That's it. Number one, they spoke the truth. Number two, they suffered for speaking the truth. Church, there is a lesson for us 
a much needed lesson for us in that simple two-part description of the prophets. Number one, they spoke the truth. Christian believer, Christian high school student, Christian mom, Christian elderly man, church member, will you speak God's truth in every situation without editing it because you get flack or resistance or become unpopular? Will you speak the truth? When you know that what you're gonna say will be labeled hate speech, will you not adopt the world's nonsensical definition of hate speech, but will you rather speak what God says is true? Will you refuse to edit the truth because it's unpopular? Point number one about the prophets, they spoke the truth. But point number two, they suffered for it. This is what makes a prophet a prophet is that he doesn't back down based on the fear of man. He doesn't cow down to the culture's uh, static and feedback. He doesn't fear the consequences of speaking the truth or very humanly, even if he does fear the consequences of speaking the truth, he fears the consequences of not speaking the truth even more. So his fear of God overcomes his fear of man. The prophets spoke the truth and they suffered for it. They didn't cow down to the fear of man. Amy and I were reading through the, the Bible this year with, the, with this uh, book by James Hamilton, God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment, and it's taken us through the prophets, and we just finished Isaiah. And these verses in Isaiah 51 hit us both. We needed them. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 51. Why are you afraid of man who dies and who is mown down like the grass? Huh, what a question. Why are you afraid of man who dies and who is mown down like the grass? And why have you forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens? I am the Lord and I am with you. Fear not the reproach of man. For the moth will eat up man like a woolen garment, but the salvation of the Lord will endure forever. Isaiah 51. The prophet spoke the truth and they suffered for it. And these two truths are absolutely definitive of the prophets. This is like basically everything, just about everything the New Testament says about them is that they spoke the truth and they suffered for it. Jesus, when he's speaking of Jerusalem, says this, this is the city which kills the prophets and stones the prophets who spoke the truth to her. That's how proverbial this is. Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great for so they persecuted all the prophets before you, Jesus says in Matthew 5. What happened to the prophets is recorded in these remarkable words in Hebrews 11. Listen. He says in verse 32 of Hebrews 11, what more can I say? 
for time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, and shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness and became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured and they refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. Others were stoned. Others were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Those of whom this world is not worthy, he says. That's the prophets. They spoke the truth. They didn't cow down to the threat of the saw, cutting them in two. God says this world is not worthy of them. This is remarkable. And it's ironic because it's understandably undesirable to be persecuted by the world. And in this marvelous gospel irony, this wonderful Jesus up is down and down is up, the way Jesus puts everything, it becomes strangely attractive and desirable that when you belong to Jesus, you want the city which is to come. And if this city down here calls you a hater or throws you in jail or takes away all your money or saws you in two, the only thing you want is the city which is to come. When a prophet is faithful to speak the word of God, he says in a couple of times here in Hebrews 11, that shuts the mouths of the lions. There are unique circumstances where when the prophet is faithful to speak the word of God, this uh, generates, so to speak, a supernatural deliverance. That's the exception. <laughs> Listen, church, the rule is when a prophet is faithful to speak the word of God, that does not protect the prophet from suffering. That enters him into suffering. Speaking the truth of the word of God is the kind of job where the better you are at it, the worse you will be treated for it. That's why it's strange and ironic that we would sign up for that job. But here we are. Faithfulness to your calling does not protect you from suffering. It involves you in it. But far better, far better, as Hebrews says, to give up the treasure that moth is gonna eat up anyway and store up treasure in the city which is to come. Church, expect to follow the example of suffering like the prophets. As we pray for Brian and Dana Phipps in Turkey, as we pray for our missionaries near and far, as I pray for you, our students on your campuses, our people who are still in the workforce, in your workplace, or working at home in your pajamas in your Zoom meeting and getting paid for it, whatever the case may be. Will you speak God's truth or not? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10? Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they're gonna deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. And when they deliver you over, 
Jesus says, don't be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Jesus warns us, brother will, will deliver over brother to death and father, child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Expect to follow the example of endurance that has been set for us by prophets and that has been laid out for us by Jesus. And don't be surprised when you suffer. Jesus warns us about it. Don't be surprised when you suffer. You ever, I just, I had a small surprise this week. I went to the grocery store and I got home and I emptied out my bags and I'm putting away the groceries. And as I empty out the last bag, out tumbles a tube of uh, razzleberry flavored Spider-Man toothpaste. <laughs> I didn't buy that. What, what is that doing in my bag? So I grab the receipt and I look and there it is in my receipt. I paid $3.95 for that stupid tube of toothpaste. And I didn't buy it. So I, I, the next day, I went back into the store. I was like, I want to return this. She was like, what's wrong with it? I said, well, I didn't buy it. I don't know how, I don't know. It's probably one of you was following me around. You just flicked that thing into my cart. You never know what's going to surprise you. You know, in 1 Peter 4, a pastor named Peter says to a congregation just like this one, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which is exploding all around you because you have chosen to be faithful to Christ. Don't be surprised by it. James is preparing us. The Holy Spirit is preparing us for this persecution which is coming. I was in California last, last, last Sunday. I told you for my son-in-law's graduation from seminary, from the master's seminary. You know, the speaker at, this, at the commencement wasn't the president emeritus of the seminary, as you would expect, Dr. John MacArthur. The keynote speaker at his commencement was Pastor James Coates. You know who he is? He's the master seminary graduate who was arrested and stayed in jail for quite a while just for conducting church services in Canada. And it was surreal. This is, this is not some aged, wrinkled guy in Russia. This is like a young guy who just graduated a couple of years ahead of my son-in-law, and here he is out of jail and addressing us. And the address came from this text in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering so that you also may rejoice and be glad when Christ's glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Marvelous text there in 1 Peter 4. Church, expect to follow the example of suffering like the prophets. James, Peter, Jesus, they all warn us just of this. Well, there's a second point from James 5, and that's from verse 11. Not only are we to follow the example of the prophets who suffer, but verse 11 says we're to remain steadfast like the example of Job. We're to remain steadfast 
like the example of Job. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Remain steadfast like the example of Job. Job is one of the most famous stories in all of Jewish history. And if you know Job's story, like I, I think probably most of you do, this is a tiny reminder. If you don't know Job's story, this is what happened. I'm just going to read a couple of verses from Job chapter 1. The book of Job comes right before the book of Psalms, and I'm reading his story from Job 1, verse 13. Now, there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the, do and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, there came another who said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another who said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another who said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people and they're dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. Job was attacked by Satan, by sinners, by the almighty permission of a sovereign God whose ways are inscrutable but are just. And he lost all of his wealth and he lost his health and he lost his own kids. And Job showed remarkable patience. And the next verse, after it says he fell on the ground and worshiped, it says in Job 121, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job says a little bit later in Job chapter two, verse 10, he, his wife says, give up on God and die. And he says, don't speak to me as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips, Job 2.10. Two more remarkable statements of Job, one from Job 13 and verse 15. Job 13 and verse 15 says this. Job says of God, though he slay me. I will yet hope in him. And Job says in chapter 19, verses 25 and following, Job 19, verses 25 to 27, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold him and not another. I love the book of Job. We all find ourselves in it at various times in our lives. My life has had a few short seasons of suffering. I got nothing to complain about, really. But in my few short seasons of suffering, I have a collection of, uh, 
I think, 50 of, Joe, uh, of John Calvin's sermons on Job. He's, he's preached over 100 sermons on it. I've got like the 50 greatest hits. <laughs> and when I was, at times in my life when I've been in these little seasons of suffering, I've read those. And it takes, about, takes me about three days to read one of those sermons, but they are a bomb of Gilead to me. They're just like an ointment on my soul. In Calvin's sermon on Job 1, where Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Just give you a flavor. This is what Calvin says about that verse. Calvin says, whence I came out of the womb of my mother, I was entirely naked and poor. I was a miserable creature. And it pleased God to feed and preserve me from then until now. Indeed, from then until now, God hath done me an infinite number of favors. So now, when God for a moment does not send what I have desired, shall I accuse God of being a harebrain? Such ungrateful blasphemy, may it never be true of me. It's his comment on Job 1, verse 21. In Job, there are circumstantial trials and troubles, and yet there's this faith in God. There's this steadfast trust in God, even in the midst of difficulty and trial and trouble. At the end of Job, most interpreters say that Job 42, verses 5 and 6, most interpreters say that Job 42, verses 5 and 6 is the key that unlocks the whole mystery of the book of Job. I'm not sure if they're right about that, but it certainly is a thematic verse for Job. Because in the end of Job, if you remember, God appears and doesn't answer Job's questions. God appears and says, where were you? when I slung the stars into space and when I created the, the blue whale and all the ocean creatures and God merely asks Job questions and Job is silenced. And then it says in Job 42, verses five and six, Job says to God, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And this brings us Job 42 verses five, uh, five and six, and then what, how James applies it. If you look back at James chapter five, verse 11, this brings us to our third and final point, And that is this, not only do we follow the example of the prophets and the example of Job, but point number three, based on verse 11 B is this, accept the Lord's purpose and trust his character. Accept the Lord's purpose and trust his character. Because if you see, it says in verse 11 of James 5, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Church, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What a counterintuitive way to summarize the message 
of the book of Job, that it is an extension of God's mercy and compassion, that it is a, that it is a cosmic display on the platform of human pain and suffering of the character of God, which is good all the time and filled with compassion. Accept the Lord's purpose and trust his character. You see how it says in the very end of verse 11 how the Lord is. It's interesting. He says the purpose of the Lord, and then he says how the Lord is. Sisters, brothers, we... We can try to find the through line on the purpose of God in our lives. Sometimes we can divine it, sometimes we can't. But the through line that we can always grab a hold of is that the Lord is. Church, hear this. Whatever the question is, the answer is the character of God. Church, remember that. Whatever the problem, whatever the insurmountable questions that rise up in the middle of the night, the remedy is the character of God. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. So how do we cultivate patience? We, who deserve God to repeat the command to be patient four times over. How do we cultivate patience? Well, the answer is right there in verse 11. See the purpose of the Lord, that is, trust the Lord's purpose. And see the character of the Lord, that is, trust the Lord's character. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. Impatience, impatience is this explosion because the people around me or the circumstances around me are preventing me from accomplishing my purpose. That's what impatience is. It's exploding on the circumstances or the people around us because they are preventing me from completing my purpose. Patience is cultivated by simply acknowledging God has a purpose and God is good and God is in control. God has a purpose. God is good and God is in control. Therefore, even if, you, even if you've never lived like this, just imagine what it would be like to live like this. Therefore, I no longer have to go around with my blood pressure through the roof because all the people around me and all of the life circumstances around me are just one setback after another, one random heartbreak after another, one tear-inducing, sobbing, choking circumstance after another. I don't have to live like that because I know that even though I weep in the hard times, I know this, God has a purpose. I don't know what it is, but I know that he has it. I don't have to know it. I know that he knows it. And I know that God is good. And I know that he's compassionate and merciful. Church, whatever the question, the answer is the character of God, the almighty, awesome reality of who God is. This is my father's world. And he knows what's best. And I don't have to run around impatient because the wristwatch is on his wrist, not mine. 
Endurance comes from allegiance to the character of Almighty God. Is this not Christian endurance? Is this, this statement becomes true of you, woman. This statement becomes true of you, man. Is this statement, no present pressure can pivot me away from this reality. God is good. God has a plan. I trust him. God is good. God has a plan. I trust him. Man, there's so much meaning in this, this understanding of the character of God out of the book of Job. I have a, I have a folder on my desk titled um, Future Sermons. And this happens more than you would like. This, so this last week, I'm looking at Job and I just, I just hit a vein, man. And this, Job is just gushing. And so that little folder on my desk now has like eight future sermons from Job in it. I don't know if we'll ever get to them or not. Depends how long I live and how long you put up with me. But there, there is so much here. Let me just tell you one more thing about Job and then we'll draw our thoughts to a conclusion. Remember how the key was that he saw God? We complain about the suffering, the chiseling, the hammering, the earth-shattering breaking that goes on in our lives. But what if the riddle that Job unlocks is this? Once we see how great God is, and once we see that God's plan is to get people like us to, to join him in heaven and to actually, when we see him, become like him because we see him as he is. If we see how great God is and that God's plan is to get people like us to have fellowship with him, then the question doesn't become how, mu- how come there's so much chiseling and so much hardship? The mind-blowing question becomes, How can a God like that get people like us united to him with so little chiseling, so little suffering, so little pain when we see how great he is and how sinful we are? How can God get us to be with him with so little chiseling and suffering and pain to us and so much suffering and pain to himself? in the second person of the eternal triune Godhead who took on flesh and suffered for us. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Oh, church, accept the Lord's purpose and trust in his character. Christian steadfastness, Christian steadfastness is simply the steady refusal to drift into this world's doubts about God. Christian steadfastness is the steady cultivation of biblical faith in God. 
Christian endurance is the steady refusal to buy into the world's contradiction of the gospel and the world's contradiction of the character of God. Instead of drifting into the world's denial of gospel truth, Christian endurance is simply to follow the example of the prophets, to follow the steadfast example of Job, and say, my anchor is this. God is, God is good, and I will trust him. So, beloved, endurance and steadfastness comes down to trust. Trust and obey. Even obedience never works without trust. It's trusting God. We know that Christian obedience is not some checklist that we can manage in our own strength. The book of Job teaches us that Christian obedience is... is uh, Christian obedience is simply letting God place us or placing ourselves in submission to God so that he can do in us by his word, by the people around us, by the circumstances around us, that which is his good purpose. And we see that purpose and we see that his purpose is filled with compassion and mercy toward us. As an example of suffering and patience, church, follow the prophets. As an example of steadfastness in difficult circumstances, church, follow the steadfastness of Job. All this, trusting that God is and that God is good to us in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.